Hello, and welcome back to Insight, the only cybersecurity podcast in the entire world. My name is Joseph Perry, Director of Education at Arctic Wolf, bringing you a new edition of our podcast under our new name, Arctic Wolf Incident Response. And my name is David Cruz, Director of Insurance Alliances for the same. We're here to talk about the topics most important for people making business decisions about security, dive into subjects you've probably heard mentioned but never heard explained, and generally make the world of InfoSec a little bit more comprehensible. We're still providing best-in-class security and making sure you stay informed, but now we howl during our meetings. That's right. And today we're going to be howling about a hugely important topic, the Center for Internet Security's Critical Security Controls. These are, as you probably imagine, a set of controls published by the Center for Internet Security, generally called CIS. We'll also be talking a little bit about one of the latest advances in publicly available AI and what that might mean for AI or for security in general. Well, I, for one, welcome our robot overlords, but we'll get into that a little bit later. Now, there are a lot of organizations trying to standardize security, build frameworks, and generally make it all make sense. We talked about some of them in the last episode. What makes CIS different from, say, ISO, what we talked about last time, Joseph? That's a great question. And as you say, in the last episode, we talked about a few different organizations and systems and the, the purposes of each of them. For CIS, the main thing to bear in mind is that CIS is a community-driven rather than politically driven. Uh, like ISO is about standards and ensuring a minimum of a uh, minimum level of performance, whereas CIS is about these best practices that are captured by the community, offering roadmaps and guidance. So CIS is more about learning to do the thing, while ISO is more about validating that you actually did the thing correctly? Exactly. Well, you know, that makes sense. You know, there's there's a lot of standards and a lot of competing solutions in cybersecurity, but the hardest part is often just knowing where to begin. It absolutely is. And that's precisely what the CIS controls came about to solve. All right. Well, hey, that's enough preamble, Joseph. Tell us about the CIS critical security controls. Sure. So the CIS critical security controls are currently in their eighth version, which is separated into 18 specific controls governing everything from asset management to penetration testing. 18 is certainly a decent list, but that honestly seems too short to cover every relevant topic. There are billions of dollars of damage inflicted every month, and solving that problem with an 18-point program, it just doesn't sound very realistic. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And that's because the controls are not a paint-by-the-number security program. And to be honest, there's no such thing, and anyone who says differently is selling something to you. <laughs> Instead, the controls provide a starting point around which a healthy security program can grow. Each of these topics can be, and very often is, the focus of one person's entire career. No kidding. Well, so instead of a checklist, the CIS controls are a jumping off point. Exactly. Well, given that all these topics are so deep, how can we really know where to begin diving in? After all, different organizations are going to have dramatically different needs, and those needs are going to change over time as their security programs get more mature and as their organizations grow. That is absolutely true. And CIS took that fact into account when they were developing these controls. So instead of it just being a list without differentiation of just control one, control two, et cetera, the controls are broken out into safeguards, which are then categorized based on the implementation groups, IGs one through three. And each of those implementation groups builds on the one that came before. So when you say that each level builds on the last, what you mean is that people in implementation group three or IG three are still going to be doing all of the things in groups one and two, right? Exactly. IG1 is describing controls for a small to medium organization with limited technical expertise. IG2 is for organizations with dedicated IT and cybersecurity staff, usually a department. And then IG3 is for the folks with a significant cybersecurity program with specialized components. And so IG3 is going to be doing everything that IG2 and IG1 do, just usually at a much bigger scale. 
So those categories are interesting because you sort of expect cybersecurity programs to be grouped based on maybe the size of the organization they protect or the budget or the industry. And well, that, all, that, that obviously does matter, but that isn't how this is structured. Why is that? There are a couple of reasons. The first is that cybersecurity budgeting isn't a problem with a one-size-fits-all one kind of solution. If an organization is really small but has a very skilled technical staff, it can probably accomplish the same goals with a smaller overall budget than a major enterprise with no dedicated security practitioners. So a company with a huge budget allocated could still be in that IG1 territory. Exactly. If they're just starting out their cybersecurity journey, it doesn't really matter how much money they have agreed to spend or plan to spend. What really matters is understanding what the most important actions they can take are. IG1 safeguards are going to focus on protecting business operations and employee data, things basically any organization needs. IG2 begins to address issues that are going to come up in regulation and compliance and things that are going to need more of a specialized staff to manage. And then IG3 is all about handling sophisticated attacks, mitigating impact from unforeseen events, and dealing with security automation, all of which can require significant technical skill on the part of your staff. So if an organization is just starting their security journey, but they also have regulatory obligations, that means they need to do be pretty quick about moving through IG1 and IG2. Hiring, training, infrastructure, all those things take pretty significant amounts of time and money. How do they pull that off? Well, as we mentioned at the top of our show, we're not just two buds making a podcast in our spare time. We are that, but we're also here on behalf of Arctic Wolf Networks on a mission to end cyber risk, which gives us the support and the resources we use to make this show in much the same way that it helps people answer the question you just asked, finding their way through those first steps of the security journey. Everything from understanding your current security posture and vulnerabilities through building your program up to finding and neutralizing threats both before and after they materialize, all the while working with cyber insurance and privacy law to make sure everyone is protected. That was a uh, pretty slick ad break you managed to work in there, Joseph. <laughs> Thanks. It only took me four tries to write it. <laughs> well, all right. Leaving that aside, we've, we've talked a bit today about the Center for Internet Security's critical security controls. In our next episode, we'll dive into the first CIS control, inventory and control of enterprise assets. We'll talk about the associated safeguards and break down how each implementation group should approach those safeguards. But for today, it's time to get on to the news. Oh, and what news it is. Those of you who follow AI news are probably aware that OpenAI fairly recently made their chat GPT model available to the public. This is the most sophisticated chatbot ever released for popular consumption, and it's basically all the internet has been talking about in the weeks since it came out. Now, as excited as I am to have a conversation with Skynet before we all get sent to work in the lithium mines, uh, why is this relevant to a security podcast? Well, unlike a lot of chatbots, ChatGPT has access to a truly massive amount of data. OpenAI trained the model using human feedback, a process known as RLHF, uh, which allows it to better imitate human responses and produce more useful information. Uh, this is plugged into their proprietary training pipelines, which aren't public knowledge, the details of them. Um, so as a result of that, ChatGPT is able to do things like write and debug code, provide technical guidance, and answer complex questions. It can even write stories in a lot of cases. So it's not always right. Uh, sometimes it's even a little bit nonsensical, but it's a tremendously powerful tool. So if, if ChatGPT can write and debug code... And we know that malware is computer code. Can ChatGPT write malware? There are some security measures in place that are designed to prevent that from happening, but the answer is just yes. Uh, in fact, Dr. Siegfried Rasthofer, a German security researcher, posted screenshots to LinkedIn a little while back, uh, a week ago, I think, now displaying basically how he had manipulated ChatGPT into writing ransomware, despite that being a specifically disallowed task. So if it's not allowed, uh, how did he do it? <laughs> 
Yeah, so the thing to remember about these massive models is the, these AI models are just black boxes. Very few people understand the technology, and a tiny fraction of those people can actually follow the math. Uh, so as a result of that, it's not really possible to say that any given model is definitely safe or any given action is definitely not allowed. So while the actual word ransomware was flagged, what Dr. Rasthofer did was just ask GPT to do each of the individual ransomware tasks, find all the files on a directory, exfiltrate all the files on a directory, and encrypt all the files on a directory. Without the greater context that this was ransomware, the bot was very happy to oblige. So, so this is kind of simultaneously a problem of AI being too smart. It can write functional malicious code and also not smart enough. It can't recognize when a request is trying to bypass its internal restrictions. Yeah. And so attackers might be able to use chat GPT or models like it to scan large code bases for vulnerabilities, to productize those vulnerabilities, and then to publish exploits all without any real technical knowledge of their own. Well, that sounds pretty apocalyptic. It is, and it isn't. At the moment, the model is proprietary, so it's it's also tremendously expensive, and so it's probably too expensive for most cyber criminals to try and build their own. Um, and as security researchers keep issuing you know, reports about the problems that they're finding, like Dr. Rasthopper did, as long as that's being ethically disclosed, OpenAI has the opportunity to build better safeguards. But yeah, it is only a matter of time before AI vulnerability discovery bots are just the norm in cybersecurity and cybercrime. Well, on that not at all terrifying note, uh, Joseph, we've reached the end of today's episode. Uh, next time, we'll dive into the first CIS control set and learn about asset inventories. Until then, I've been David Cruz. And I've been Joseph Perry. And this has been Insight from Arctic Wolf. 